All right, so um, moving on, uh, our last speaker of the uh, day um, uh, will be uh, Dr. Jeff Klausner, who's professor of medicine uh, and public health at UCLA. Um, uh, Jeff is in, in, in charge of our uh, STD uh, program and runs a very large uh, uh, research program uh, here in Los Angeles uh, for that. And he's going to talk to us about STD, and it has an intriguing title of uh, Burning Questions. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Ron, and thanks to the organizers for um, inviting me uh, today. Uh, do I have to initiate this? Okay, so um, of those of you who, who uh, know me know I'm very passionate about um, STDs, and, I've, um, and I was, uh, early on, very focused um, intently on STDs. And then I turned 21 and went to medical school. Uh, so, uh, uh, no applause, uh, please. Um, after being in this field for so many years, I'm terrified of the clap. <laughs> we better get the slides up quickly, so that's all I got. <laughs> all right, uh, thanks again. And um, I do receive some uh, research grants and donations of testing supplies for a variety of different studies from Gilead, Hologic, and uh, Cephid. I'm very uh, grateful for that support. Uh, so after today's presentation, we expect learners will be able to diagnose and manage gonorrhea, list treatment options for chlamydia, and describe manifestations of uh, syphilis. So I tried to focus on the big three uh, bacterial STDs, um, certainly I'd be happy to take um, questions on other STDs and also take questions uh, you may bring today from any of your friends or, uh, you know, family members may be uh, texting you. Um, so why we're talking about STDs and why I'm happy that uh, we did get on the agenda for today's presentation is because um, they've been in the news, uh, certainly, and there's been uh, substantial increases uh, based on the surveillance data in high-risk groups, particularly men who have sex with men and those with HIV infections. And then there's been uh, important reports about increases in ocular syphilis. So uh, many of us in HIV uh, practice have been having to manage ocular syphilis, so I'll cover that a little bit. Also, there was an important new report about the um, equal efficacy of one in three doses for the treatment of early syphilis. So um, we are facing a uh, crisis in the availability of bicillin, so we must use our resources judiciously and not over-treat people with um, early syphilis. And then, as Dr. Bookbinder said, um, you know, we're beginning to try to understand the role of, uh, of PrEP use and the PrEP-using population and um, the increased uh, rates of STDs in that population and what the best way to uh, manage that is. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a case, um, a 28-year-old HIV-infected man with urethral discharge. Um, I usually ask the residents uh, the ARS question about what's the name of this piercing, uh, but I'll spare that uh, for you guys today, but that is the um, Prince Albert. And uh, uh, when I think about urethritis, instead of the traditional gonococcal and non-gonococcal, I think about infectious and non-infectious because that helps us think about the variety of different infectious organisms that can cause um, urethritis. So it's not just Neisseria gonorrhea and 
chlamydia, but also mycoplasma genitalium. And most commercial laboratories do have mycoplasma genitalium nucleic acid amplification tests, but um, your hospital lab or um, your um, you know, local lab may not have it, but that's an important cause of uh, urethritis. Trichomonas vaginalis is also available by nucleic acid amplification tests. And there are um, different case series and reports of herpes simplex causing urethritis, so not just the traditional uh, vesicles and uh, erosions, but urethritis. And then oral flora, and there actually there was a um, recent case series of Neisseria meningitidis um, uh, causing an outbreak of urethritis in uh, heterosexual men. So um, as people do engage in oral sex, we do have to think about uh, oral flora. And then there are non-infectious causes, which can be related to um, certain kinds of trauma. Um, people have been known to insert different chemicals or devices into the uh, urethra. And then uh, autoimmune uh, causes like uh, reactive urethritis. So this was a uh, classic case of uh, uncomplicated gonococcal infection, which the CDC defines as a Neisseria gonorrhea infection of the urethra, cervix, pharynx, or rectum which means they're all treated the same way, um, as opposed to complicated infection, which would be um, disseminate gonococcal infection, which you have to use seven days of therapy. And on this gram stain, um, you can see the gram-negative intracellular diplococci um, that, are, um, 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 that are identified as Neisseria gonorrhea. In terms of the ways we traditionally identify Neisseria gonorrhea, gram stain is still used uh, many places, many STD clinics. Uh, culture and culture, is, as you know, is being less commonly used, and that's impaired our ability to do uh, surveillance, particularly for resistance. And then DNA or RNA amplification through the uh, nucleic acid tests. And there's a variety of different manufacturers who uh, make these assays, and they all perform uh, similarly uh, well. And we can use them either on clinician or uh, self collected uh, vaginal specimens, cervical specimens, self collected rectal specimens. So, in our clinic at UCLA, um, the patients self collect their own rectal specimens. Some sites also do self collected pharyngeal uh, specimens. We have the MAs um, do the pharyngeal specimens. Um, and that, that, that allows a much more efficient use of uh, resources and makes the routine uh, screening um, a lot a lot easier. Epidemiology of gonorrhea in the United States. So, um, I mean, overall, um, you can see um, over the past four or five years, um, it's either been flat or uh, some slight increases in certain uh, populations. I mean, the, the big highlight here is the disparity between blacks and non-blacks, that we still have this, uh, you know, persistence of high rates in black Americans in the United States. When we look by HIV status, this is from a uh, CDC project called the STD Surveillance Network. This looks at MSM coming into STD clinics um, and looks at different STDs by HIV status. You can see that those with HIV coming into STD clinics um, for, for gonorrhea in particular have anywhere from a uh, two to three-fold increase um, prevalence of, of infection. And you can see that the infection can occur in multiple sites, and that's why multiple site screening is so important. What's been the really big news, though, in uh, gonorrhea is the issue of um, drug-resistant gonorrhea, multi-drug-resistant gonorrhea, even extremely drug-resistant um, gonorrhea. In uh, Japan right now, they treat gonorrhea with 
one gram of intravenous ceftriaxone. So uh, we're not there yet, um, but that's something to think about that uh, we may be at a point in, uh, in time when we would have to hospitalize patients for the treatment of uh, what used to be a fairly simple infection. So we did see an increase in our extended spectrum cephalosporin, cefixime, and ceftriaxone um, resistance through 2011. In 2012, the CDC updated the recommendations for treatment, and either because of just natural ecology of the organism in the, in the um, human environment or because of those uh, recommended changes, we, we have seen somewhat of a, of a decline, but something we continue to monitor very closely. So right now, recommendations for gonorrhea treatment is two drugs. So like we use combination therapy for HIV. We use multi-drug therapy for tuberculosis. So now we use two drugs uh, for the treatment of gonorrhea. It's also very important that as clinicians, we're actively uh, thinking and treating partners. So in the state of California, um, I worked on the different policy initiatives back in the early 2000s to make it legal for providers to provide extra medication, um, e extra prescriptions. We call expedited partner therapy or patient-delivered partner therapy to make sure that patients get treated. Um, and their partners. And obviously, um, it confounds some programs thinking, well, I can't obviously give ceftriaxone to a patient to give to their partner, so what can I do? Many programs give cefixime, um, oral cefixime, 400 milligrams, plus azithromycin to, um, as a partner pack to bring home, and that's what, we've, uh, been what, what we had done and what I'd started in San Francisco for many years. And then important of, of retesting. So not, not to look for uh, test or cure, but because people who get gonorrhea, the biggest predictor of gonorrhea is a past infection, they're usually in a high-risk sexual network, so it's important to keep screening and, and repeat screening. So large STD programs, HIV programs that do take care of a lot of patients with STDs should have tickler systems and should have um, implementation of activities to remind patients of callbacks for a uh, three-month um, repeat test. So one novel way that we've been working at uh, UCLA in terms of to, you know, is there a smarter way that we can actually treat gonorrhea? Do we have to, you know, every patient with gonorrhea, do we have to use the ceftriaxone and azithromycin sledgehammer? And the uh, challenge has been, well, we don't know the susceptibility of that organism. And when we're using nucleic acid amplification tests, uh, we, we don't have the ability to do uh, traditional uh, susceptibility. But taking uh, our, our kind of knowledge from HIV and thinking about genotypes and thinking about resistant mutations, we actually can, can identify specific resistant mutations in gonorrhea that are amenable to rapid nucleic acid amplification uh, testing and, and determination. And there's something called the gyrase A, which is the target of ciprofloxacin. So, um, we now reflex our positive nucleic acid um, gonorrhea test to, to this gyrase assay. And this gyrase A, gyra, a assay uh, helps determine whether that um, infection is susceptible or not to ciprofloxacin. And about half the cases um, who are not treated empirically when, when they come into the clinic will we'll then get a result of their Neisseria gonorrhea positive test and this gyrase A result. And then if it's wild type, the patient can be safely treated with ciprofloxacin. 
And then when they can be treated with ciprofloxacin, their partner can be treated with ciprofloxacin. Makes it a lot easier in terms of management instead of calling back in patients to receive ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And also we think, we don't know, it could reduce the selection pressure and reduce the um, emergence of ceftriaxone resistance. So this is being um, evaluated now in a, in a larger um, trial across the United States where we're going to be taking these wild-type Nasiri-gonorrhea-infected cases, treating with ciprofloxacin, and then doing a uh, test to cure. But we implemented this in um, November 2015 in, in UCLA, and you can see on this chart there, that there has been a shift, that there's been an increase in uh, ciprofloxacin use, and our uh, providers have appreciated the opportunity to um, have a choice of different antibiotics. It's also useful for patients who may have a cephalosporin allergy. So now I'm going to move uh, from gonorrhea. Um, anyone have any questions on gonorrhea? As the last speaker, we can be a little bit more informal. Right, so for ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams. And what's nice about ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams, um, you know, that, 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 that was our standard of care in the mid-90s and was shown to be highly efficacious, 99% or greater for uh, pharyngeal, rectal, or urogenital infection. Yeah, so single dose, so it's, it's cheap, it's easy to take, it's well tolerated, few drug, drug interactions. So if we can get this gyrase test expanded, and we are working with um, another large commercial laboratory to try to introduce that, but as we get providers aware of it, they perhaps demand this assay, um, you know, it can be added into um, the you know, traditional diagnostic algorithm. No, so we're doing the gyrase assay as a reflex test on every positive gonorrhea test. Now, half those people were treated on that same day, right? People come in as symptomatic or they come in in contacts. But the other half of the people were people who are screening positive. And particularly because a lot of these infections are asymptomatic, people carrying their rectum, they don't know it. They have in their throat, they don't know it. It gives us an opportunity to get this gyrase test back and then treat them on the basis of that. So in terms of resistance, so we, we um, nationally in the overall population, it's about 80% susceptible. Um, in the MSM population, uh, it's about 60% susceptible. So um, that, 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 that does reduce the utility of it because you do have, you know, some frequency of resistance, but obviously um, when you have a wild type, then you're, you can use uh, Cipro. I guess it depends which, well, I guess it depends which swab you do first. Right, right. Right, so, right, so, so people have looked at that. They, they, they've looked at pooling specimens, um, and they find that, um, you know, pooling specimens, so they have three different swabs, and then they just do one test on those three swabs. Um, works just as well as the, as the individual swabs. Obviously, the manufacturers and the laboratories are not FDA cleared or clear compliant to do that. Um, but um, it works. All right, I'm going to move on to the uh, next case. This is a 28-year-old HIV-infected male 
presents for a uh, checkup. He has one regular partner and occasional partners. He meets at various venues and clubs. He has no symptoms. Uh, what STD screening tests are appropriate? This is not an ARS uh, question yet. So uh, what's recommended are chlamydia and Neisseria gonorrhea testing of the throat, rectum, and urine, and uh, syphilis tests. So I call that the Grand Slam, four tests. So one from each anatomic site that may have been exposed, and the syphilis test. And then we had a, a good discussion about anal pap smears. So um, there's actually a discordance within UCLA on this. So I don't uh, perform anal pap smears on my patients. I think there's still data that uh, needs to be demonstrated. The uh, cervix and the anus is not the same, as Dr. Mitsuyasu says, by uh, digital rectal exam. Um, you can identify uh, early lesions. Um, you know, I don't think an expensive test like um, anal cytology you know, should be a replacement for inexpensive tests like a digital uh, rectal exam. But I think there's a lot of you know, um, equipoise now. So if you're not doing it, it's fine. If you're doing it, it's probably fine as well. Comment? Thank you. Does a, like you've got the swab for the GC and chlamydia. Is there not such a swab available yet to test for the presence of HBV? I know there are lots of different strains, but there's probably some commonality. You would think that they should be able to just do that, which would be more specific than, than a pap smear. Yeah, so the, you know, you know, you know, question is, can you do adjunctive HPV testing? I mean, the, the challenge is that um, HPV, you have people acquire and uh, HPV with a lot of frequency. Many of those don't persist. It's really the persistent ones that you're concerned about. So just because you have a single positive HPV test, um, you're not really sure how to manage that. And there have been no good management studies or strategy studies to tell us how to use it. So it's, it's not recommended. Um, so um, I don't recommend routine anal pap smear uh, screening and routine herpes simplex virus antibody testing is also uh, not uh, recommended unless someone has a history or someone has a partner with herpes and they're concerned about their status. So in, in this case, uh, the rectal test came back um, CT positive or positive for chlamydia. So now the question is, what is the best treatment for rectal chlamydia infection in this HIV-infected patient? Driving that train, how cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. All right, uh, very good. This gives us an opportunity to uh, review some of the data. Um, there actually have been three uh, systematic reviews now and two meta-analyses showing that for rectal chlamydia infection, doxycycline has about a 15 to 18% uh, superiority in terms of uh, efficacy and clinical outcomes um, in terms of repeat positivity compared to um, azithromycin. So the CDC and their SED treatment recommendations uh, talks about the superiority, but that says because of the lack of any randomized clinical trials, um, providers should just consider the use of doxycycline over, over azithromycin. Um, Seattle King County, which as you know, is often a leader 
in uh, STD uh, treatment and policy, um, they do recommend doxycycline for the treatment of rectal chlamydia. So um, as people are learning about the superior efficacy of uh, doxycycline, uh, people are preferring doxycycline over azithromycin. And also doxycycline has the advantage of treating incubating syphilis. So um, even one week of therapy um, has been shown to abort a um, syphilis exposure. So you, you may be getting some extra uh, benefit um, by using doxycycline over, over um, azithromycin. So in, in the CDC uh, STD surveillance network study, you can also see uh, markedly higher rates um, of rectal chlamydia um, in HIV-infected versus uninfected individuals. Um, rectal chlamydia is obviously a, you know, not only a marker of condomless receptive anal sex, but um, in HIV, uninfected individuals can increase the risk of uh, HIV acquisition independently um, from the sex act. So, so, so there is some value from an HIV prevention perspective um, to screening and treatment of rectal chlamydia. HIV-infected in individuals provide a reservoir for the larger community potentially, so screening and treatment in that population, um, the aim there is to reduce ongoing uh, transmission. All right, so that's all I was going to cover on chlamydia. Questions on chlamydia? Uh-huh. Public health investigator. And uh, this also goes back to your issue about the uh, GC. Um, I, I think we have to be very careful about the options, but depending upon where you practice, you should adhere to the local recommendations. And for Los Angeles County, for GC, it's still ceftriaxone and zithromycin. And for chlamydia, they want zithromax given, even though the doxycycline has uh, uh, at least evidence in the literature to be effective. I, well, my comment is just basically, I think, adhere to where your local recommendations are. Uh, and and I, I have a lot of cases, so I get a lot of visits by our public health investigators in South LA. Yeah, so I, I think that's a great point. Leo's here. So Leo is the deputy medical uh, director for the LA County HIV STD program. Um, you know, we, we've talked to the STD program about ciprofloxacin use in these cases of gyrase susceptibility. And, you know, generally they uh, support and understand that. Um, but, you know, you do have to, you know, think about what, you know, your, your local recommendations are. But they are just recommendations. Um, and, you know, you have to think about what's best for the, you know, best for the patient. But then if you're going to get a lot of phone calls and follow-up and faxes, et cetera, that are disruptive to your practice, um, you know, you have to weigh that as well. But I think, you know, I think the CDC recommendations often you know, lead to state and then county recommendations. Um, sometimes we see LGV proctitis, we go three weeks. Do you have any standard testing that you usually do or just go clinical on that? Yeah, so, so the question is, um, certain types of chlamydia trachomatis can be LGV type or lymphogranuloma venereum um, type, and um, it's recommended if that's known to treat for uh, three weeks. Um, in the CDC guidelines, it says that, um, that rectal 
rectal chlamydia positive specimens should be typed for LGV, but no lab does that typing routinely. Um, so it's kind of a, an empty recommendation. Um, so some providers, if they have symptomatic uh, rectal chlamydia, will assume it's possibly LGV and treat with three weeks. But um, I mean, we've been treating symptomatic and asymptomatic rectal chlamydia with a standard one week of doxy or um, in the past single dose of azithromycin and um, have not seen you know, any increase in failure. And there really hasn't been a randomized controlled clinical trial looking at you know, single dose versus three weeks for the treatment of LGV. Um, okay, let me move on to the uh, last SCD. Uh, this is a 44-year-old HIV-infected man with a new lesion near his anus. You can see the uh, gloved hands of the uh, examiner. Um, and this kind of, you know, rubbery um, uh, lesion that's um, not particularly red or erythematous or angry um, at the base. Um, so we would start off just calling this a uh, anogenital um, ulcer. And we, we think about different STDs like herpes, primary syphilis, chancroid. Chancroid, fortunately, for uh, reasons we don't fully understand, has essentially been eliminated from the United States. There are a few cases every year in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, due to some unique network between West Africa and that part of the uh, United States. But there are no, haven't been reported cases in California in, uh, in, in years. Um, there's non-infectious causes of genital ulcers, fixed drug reactions, occasionally non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatories. When we used to use phoscarnet, that used to be a non-uncommon cause of uh, vaginal ulcers. Occasionally, uh, pyogenic organisms like staph or strep and then autoimmune um, conditions can cause uh, genital ulceration as well. So in one of the few places that still has a dark field microscope, uh, what one would see these uh, treponemes, uh, characteristic 120 degree angle, uh, 10 to uh, 20 kind of uh, coarse group pattern, and this is um, makes a diagnosis of treponema pallidum pallidum, which is the bacterial spirochete that causes uh, syphilis. Other penile chancres, um, these are a little bit atypical, some of them may, may be more irritated appearing and erythematous and shaggy at the base. Um, people with HIV can have uh, multiple ulcers instead of just um, a, a single ulcer. And in your image on the uh, lower right, there's actually um, about four or five very small punctate ulcerations that are scabbed over that uh, most of us would assume was uh, herpes but these were dark field positive uh, for syphilis as well. There can be co-infections both with herpes and uh, syphilis um, that uh, sometimes may not be um, identified. And then typically in an uncircumcised male, the, the lesions will be under the foreskin, so it's important that uh, the foreskin is retracted for a full uh, um, examination. So, so after someone has a uh, lesion, they hope that lesion goes away. They're sure it was a zipper cut or some kind of trauma. And about, you know, about a week to 10 days later, that, that, that lesion goes away. And then about uh, two months later, they come back and uh, they, they present with a rash. And now you're seeing them, they have fever, they have a rash, they may have some lymphadenopathy, they don't feel well. It's February, and you're thinking, okay, this is a viral syndrome, and you treat them symptomatically, and um, they, may, they may go on their way. 
but the, this would be a fairly typical macular papular rash of uh, secondary syphilis. You also look on the hands and the palms and the soles, you see these annular, circular, kind of copper-colored uh, lesions. Um, not a lot of uh, infections in adolescents, children, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, if they're from the right endemic area. Occasionally severe drug reactions, Stephen Johnson's um, can cause um, desquamation and lesions on the palms and soles, but if you're taking care of patients with HIV, sexually active, you definitely have to have a very high suspicion for syphilis. Um, this was actually a case about a month ago that we got consulted on at Ronald Reagan Hospital for endocarditis. And I was the infectious disease consultant on, and they said, uh, you know, we'd like your recommendations for management of, of endocarditis. It's got classic, you know, you know, lesions on the palms. And I said to the fellow, I said, you know, if I didn't know this was endocarditis, I would say this was potentially secondary syphilis. I said, you know, for fun, let's get an RPR. And of course, the RPR came back 1 to 128. And the patient did not have endocarditis and had uh, secondary syphilis. Um, and this is what the other side of the uh, um, patient's hand looked like in terms of this pretty, uh, you know, nonspecific rash. Other kind of lesions you can see in secondary syphilis is why it's important to do a good oral exam and also an um, anal um, examination. Are these kind of either papules, um, the kind of condylomatolata, which can look like um, warts, but a little bit more shiny and uh, wet in appearance. And then in the mouth, you can see these lesions that we would all say is thrush, maybe oral hairy leukoplakia, but these are mucus patches of secondary syphilis. So if you see these lesions, you have to think uh, this is possibly secondary syphilis. And if you look on the buccal mucosa on the uh, image on the far right, that looks like an aphthous ulcer, but this is also a secondary um, lesion, a mucus patch with secondary syphilis. This also kind of reminds us why oral sex is a very efficient way to transmit syphilis because these lesions are highly infectious. But then if this, is, if this goes undiagnosed and untreated, all these symptoms go away and someone then goes into the stage of latent syphilis. And latent syphilis is not gonna be identified unless they have a serologic test. And um, serologic tests are um, you know, the, the mainstay of our prevention, our screening, and our uh, diagnostic activities. So I wanted to re review those. Um, and remind us that there's the non-trepanemal test. So these are tests that measure antibody to this cardiolipin lecithin phospholipid antibody, which was when the test was invented in 1903, they basically took a beef heart, so a cow's heart, they ground that up, and they reacted patient's serum to this beef heart antigen. And if it was positive, then it was a, a high likelihood that that patient actually had um, syphilis infection. It's these non-trepanemal tests that go up and down um, um, over time. We consider a significant change when there's at least a fourfold difference, so from one to two to one to eight, or a fourfold decline, one to 64 to one to 16. They are very specific, but they're not 100% specific. There can be false positives in injection drug users and people with autoimmune conditions recent uh, vaccination um, as well. So then most labs uh, will then reflex this RPR to a treponemal test, which is more specific, looking for antibodies to actual treponemal antigen. 
Interestingly, we found that the treponemal test is more sensitive. Um, it'll become positive sooner after infection. So if you're particularly concerned with a clinical case, you want to get both tests because your RPR may be negative and your treponemal test may be positive. Sometimes it's hard to force the laboratory, though, depending on where you send your specimens, to do a treponemal test, as they won't do it unless there is a uh, reactive RPR test. The treponemal test is, a, is the test that stays positive for life. That's what we teach. It's not 100% true. If you, if you identify someone very early on, you can treat them, and their treponemal test will uh, become seronegative. Uh, but it doesn't help us necessarily determine the activity of infection, so you have to use both tests in combination. I get a fair amount of phone calls. I'm always happy to field them on interpretation of uh, serologic tests. In HIV infection, um, we've learned that uh, some of the differences are that patients can have both primary and secondary uh, manifestations, so they can have genital lesions, um, ulcers, chancres, and a rash. Um, the titer decline is a little bit slower, so you have to be a little bit more patient. So a patient with early syphilis, you have to wait 12 months to determine if they respond to the therapy. A patient with late syphilis, um, you have to wait um, uh, 24 months. As I mentioned, um, there's no difference in therapy, and I'll show you um, the outcomes slide on that next. And there is a higher risk for neurosyphilis, so anyone you diagnose with syphilis, you do have to do a targeted neurologic examination. Um, just do some basic hearing tests, uh, visual acuity tests, maybe some like a Romberg or a balance test, but there's definitely increased risk for uh, neurosyphilis in HIV-infected patients. We don't really know is that due to immune suppression, is that due to prior syphilis infection, but we know the risk is about uh, twofold higher. So this was the study from Texas, which um, uh, which randomly assigned uh, HIV-infected patients with early syphilis and treated them with a single dose or three doses and found no difference in their um, clinical outcome or, 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 or tighter response and um, kind of really forms and reaffirms the CDC recommendation that in early syphilis, a less than 12 months duration, a single dose of penicillin is, is adequate. Um, as you know, there is a bicillin shortage uh, throughout the United States. Uh, doxycycline um, is a reasonable alternative. Um, doxycycline has been shown in lots of observational studies to be equal to uh, penicillin, but you do have the issues of adherence and will people take 14 days of doxycycline. Prophylactic treatment, so you may see partners, uh, people say they've been contacted by the health department, um, contacted by their partner, come in, they want to be evaluated. So what you don't want to do is just test them and see if they're positive and not treat them. You want to treat them and test them because you're trying to abort the infection. You're trying to prevent them from becoming seropositive. So you want to treat all contacts and you test them if they're negative, you can say, great, you've been treated, you're not going to get syphilis, you did not get syphilis. If they're positive, then they've also probably been treated, but then you have a titer that you're going to follow over time. So very important to treat all contacts and not test to see if they got infected or not. Um, so you have, it's prophylaxis to prevent infection. Syphilis rates um, come down dramatically since the 1940s. Um, with the uh, return of the troops from World War II, a spike, then control programs brought them down. There was a uh, blip in the late uh, 1980s, 
But now um, we, we had, we've definitely seen a rise in syphilis and we're actually at a 25 year high in cases. Just today, CDC sent out a um, alert memo to providers and health departments about the increase in syphilis, a call to action for providers and for health departments to work with community partners to try to address the increases in syphilis, not only as it infected people with HIV, men of sex and men, but increasingly we're starting to see more cases of congenital syphilis. And that's a real um, crisis because that's completely preventable that if pregnant women are adequately screened, identified and treated, there should not be uh, congenital syphilis. I promise I mentioned a little bit on, on ocular syphilis, and this was just a slide that shows some of the um, ocular findings about 64% um, had blurry vision, 32% had vision loss, and uh, only 14% had red eye. So that's why just a, a historical question, have you had any visual loss or blurriness is a good screening question for ocular syphilis. And if there is a suspicion there that they need a more formal ophthalmologic evaluation, they uh, probably need to have a CSF examination as well and, and obviously a blood test. And then if they're positive, they need to, to be adequately treated. So this is my second um, Question is, what are recommended indications for lumbar puncture? RPR greater than 1 to 32, CD4 less than 350, visual changes or headache? All right, so the correct answer there is visual changes, right? So someone with, with a syphilis infection who has any ocular potential in involvement, that's an indication for CSF analysis. There have been a variety of studies showing association between high titer, low CD4 count, and neurosyphilis, but um, no one has made recommendations of just uh, routinely doing lumbar puncture or CSF analysis. Headache is always one of those, you know, difficult things that takes a lot of, you know, clinical um, assessment. Um, it's not a strict indication for uh, CSF um, examination. The CDC recommendations for lumbar puncture are neurologic symptoms or signs, suspected ocular syphilis, treatment failure. So if someone has not had that fourfold decline in titer or has had a rise in titer, or tertiary syphilis, and um, unfortunately, we still are occasionally seeing cases of tertiary syphilis with um, particularly aortic um, disease, and I just had a case about six weeks ago of a um, guy who needed aortic um, um, dissection repair and aortic valve replacement that was felt to be related to um, uh, syphilis. Um, importantly, when, when you're treating people for syphilis, whether it's an injection or um, intravenous therapy, uh, common reaction, particularly in secondary syphilis, is going to be the Jarrus-Herxheimer reaction, right? So people, usually a couple hours after treatment, it can be 24, up to 24 hours of treatment, can have a mild fever. If they had any lesions or rash, they may have worsening of, that, of those lesions or that rash, but it's usually transient and must be differentiated from a penicillin allergy. 
So a penicillin allergy is usually either going to be immediate or delayed. And if it's going to be delayed, it's usually going to be several days later, like a typical drug rash. It's not going to be, it's not, it's, it's not going to be two hours to 24 hours later. That's probably the gyrus herxheimer reaction, and then you should just continue with, with your therapy if you're giving intravenous therapy and not consider that an allergic reaction. Question. And RPR is positive. How does the lumbar puncture change your management? Yeah, that, that, that the question always comes up. How, how does lumbar puncture change the management? How is that going to affect what I do? I'm going to treat the patient for, for neurosyphilis anyway. They're going to get the 10 to 14 days of IV therapy plus the injection of, of one to three doses after. And, um, I mean, it's recommended uh, in the guidelines in in the book, it gives you something to monitor. So six, six to 12 months later, you're supposed to do a repeat CSF to see if there's been resolution of, of, of the inflammation. And um, it, it doesn't really help you if they're VDRL positive or negative. So it's, it's just a baseline test to see how they've uh, re, um, re responded to therapy. Because about 30% about of these ocular cases will have no improvement. So you want to make sure you didn't inadequately treat the patient for some reason. Um, and if you did see, you know, elevated white cells at the beginning and the white cells resolved, you could say, okay, well, you've been adequately treated. I'm not going to retreat you. Um, but this is just the, you know, persistence of the, of the eye disease. But I, I agree it's kind of a, you know, good question about what's the real need if you're going to treat them anyway. Um, the textbook also says that you're looking for other causes of you know potential CNS disease. So I'm going to wrap up um, with a little bit on prevention because it um, ha it has come up several times. Well, how can we more effectively prevent syphilis in our patient population? So one way is definitely screening and to make sure that there's uh, triggers and that there are callbacks and their system is in place when patients come in. They routinely get syphilis testing. Syphilis testing is inexpensive. It's accurate easy to do, so at least on my lab orders, when I'm getting the viral load and CD4 count, syphilis testing is always part of those uh, tests. A second way, which is um, um, exciting and data are emerging, is the use of doxycycline prophylaxis. And um, this was a study we did with Dr. Bolin at the LGBT Center here in um, Los Angeles, and uh, we randomized uh, 30 patients to either behavioral intervention or, um, dox or daily doxycycline, 100 milligrams a day, and we saw that the doxycycline group had a 72% reduction in syphilis incidence over the, um, over the observation period. This study was then replicated um, in Paris by the Ypres group. It was presented at CROI in 2017 in Seattle. They also showed the same 72% reduction in the patients who were allocated to the doxycycline arm. There are two trials now um, going to be started in British, in British Columbia, but this is um, a potential option for particular high-risk patients. So people have had syphilis um, at least once, people you know are engaging in high-risk behavior, people who are recalcitrant to uh, condom use for different reasons. It's a potential additional option. So um, I'm going to stop there, and I'll go to answer some of the questions. Thank you very much.
Question? Sure. How, how do you dose the doxycycline? Uh, so that was 100 milligrams a day. Just? Yeah, so in, in the U.S. studies, we did 100 milligrams a day yeah, and just, just continuously. And then in the uh, Ypres-Gay studies, they're into this, you know, kind of, you know, coital dependent, sex dependent dosing. They did uh, 200, uh, they did, uh, it was 100 milligram, uh, it was 200 milligrams after sex. And 200 milligrams after sex was sufficient to have a 72% reduction in syphilis. All right, so we have a few uh, questions. Could you talk about the use of azithromycin for treatment? Use of, use of azithromycin for treatment of syphilis in resource-limited uh, areas. I've read that they use it in Africa. Yeah, so um, we actually did a lot of that work here in uh, California, and I was part of some of those trials um, looking at the use of uh, azithromycin uh, to treat syphilis. So the challenge is that uh, the organism becomes quickly resistant to azithromycin. It takes one single base pair change and that organism um, cannot, is not susceptible to azithromycin. So currently, it's not recommended. In the United States, anywhere from 20 to 90% of syphilis is resistant to azithromycin. In resource-limited settings where they don't have exposure to azithromycin or macrolides, much of the uh, syphilis remains susceptible. So um, what we've done is recommended, okay, in settings where you can monitor the prevalence of resistance, if you have a resistance prevalence of less than 5%, go ahead and use azithromycin. The challenge is that monitoring syphilis resistance prevalence is not easy. It's done with a nucleic acid amplification test. You need the organism. You need the molecular laboratory. So CDC and the state strongly recommend against use of azithromycin, but in some settings it can have a role. I mean, it was found to be highly efficacious in Madagascar. Um, Okay, let me get to some of these questions. So there is some literature stating if your local GC prevalence is more than 5%, if a patient has a positive chlamydia test, they should be treated with both ceftriaxone and azithromycin, not just azithromycin alone. So um, right now the CDC is recommending the dual treatment for just GC alone. So if chlamydia has been excluded, they still need to be treated with azithromycin. And that's because we're trying to prevent the emergence of ceftriaxone resistance. So if we use that as a single drug, we're concerned that we will develop um, resistance. So ruling out chlamydia does not mean you don't use azithro to treat uh, gonorrhea. So what do you do with a persistent elevated RPR, 1 to 16 or 1 to 32, um, um, down from 1 to 128, after treatment, but no neurologic signs. So what we call that, and as the writer said, a high serial fast. So serial fast is usually one to four, one to eight, but occasionally we've had serial fast titers of um, one to 16 and one, and, and one to 32. I mean, I would feel comfortable if it was at one to 128 and went, went down to 132, that's a fourfold drop, just continue to observe. Um, however, if you don't have that fourfold drop and you are a year out, then you need to retreat, and the recommendation would be to give the uh, three doses. And if you've given them three doses, you're still at this high, 1 to 132. There's been a variety of studies that have shown no benefit from um, additional, additional therapy. It just may take that individual a uh, longer time to uh, realize a decline. But fortunately, those high titers serial fast are not 
that common, but the low titer serial fast um, actually is fairly common. Um, what do you do with a high titer serial fast patient who has been treated multiple times, even for neurosyphilis, above 1 to 32? Keep watching them. Um, there's really no benefit to just uh, pounding them with, with uh, antibiotics. Um, I've heard a recommendation to perform LP on patients with persistently reactive high serial fast titer uh, for more than two years. Have you heard of this thought? So, I mean, some people, you know, say you're looking for, you know, treatment failure and the CNS is, is a sanctuary because the traditional bicillin intramuscular dose is not going to get high enough uh, CNS levels. Um, I mean, if, if you have a history and you don't know that there's been a uh, decline, um, you know, no, no one's going to fault you for being, you know, extra cautious and looking for, you know, per persistent neurologic infection. Um, so I, I, don't think, I don't think there's a great answer for that. But if you don't have good documentation that this 1 to 32 represents a decline from a higher target in the past, you actually may be obligated to do a CSF and rule that out. But, um, you know, it wouldn't be unreasonable just to monitor for another six months and kind of see where you are, assuming, of course, the patient's completely neurologically asymptomatic. So how to address RPRs 1 to 1 or 1 to 2 with persistent um, positive treated for syphilis, um, some who seroconvert to negative. Uh, on patients previously treated, so, I mean, we, we do see these persistent low titers. Um, I would just watch them. So, again, unless there's a fourfold increase, um, you can just keep watching them and not have to do uh, uh, repeat therapy. If your syphilis titer is down to one to two and they need to um, use condoms with their partner, you guys write like doctors. Uh, if you treat syphilis, titer goes to one to two. Do they need to use condoms with their partners? Oh, so how long does someone become non-infectious, let's say after uh, treatment? So 24 hours. Um, there's actually good evidence that these organisms are exquisitely sensitive to penicillin, and they will rapidly become uh, non-infectious. Um, that's why, you know, from a public health perspective, we want to get people treated um, as quickly as possible to break the chain of ongoing uh, transmission. Remember, they're only infectious during primary and secondary stages. Latent stages, uh, when they have no symptoms, they're not infectious. And in secondary, it's not the rash that causes uh, spread of infection. It, it, it's the wet lesions. So the lesions in the, um, glute, in the gluteal creases around the anus or uh, uh, in the mouth. Those are the infectious lesions. And then the uh, chancre is also the uh, infectious lesion in primary syphilis. Um, so I, oh, here's a couple more questions. Um, my health department, Long Beach, wants three doses of bicillin for early latent syphilis. Comments. Well, we're going to have to have Leo, I guess, talk to Long Beach. But Long Beach is an independent jurisdiction. So, um, I mean, it's recommended that if we know it's early, less than one year duration, um, one dose is sufficient. Um, so I'm happy to talk to the health warrant, so email me. <laughs> All right, at LAC-USC, we have historically been quite aggressive at pursuing LPs, something, something, and have a number of patients with, re with reactive uh, CSF V-DRLs. 
Do you think we're under-treating neurosyphilis in areas that aren't getting as many LPs? Yeah, I mean, we've looked at that and thought of that, and, um, you know, we felt if we were doing, you know, too few LPs, we should see a lot more, you know, clinical neurosyphilis out there, which we, which we really don't. Um, and we've looked at, you know, a lot of population-based studies, longitudinal studies to uh, see that, and that really hasn't been the case. So um, my general feeling is I don't um, think so. And then would you treat all of our positive LPs as neurosyphilis? And the answer is yes, because it's clearly what it says in the uh, textbook, positive. The most clear definition of positive is a positive CSF VDRL. So if that's positive, you better treat that or else you're going to be in court asking why you didn't treat that um, positive CSF VDRL. Um, and then uh, the new guidelines say that HIV-infected MSM screening should be done for syphilis every three to six months. Is this being implemented and which interval is used? So um, I'm actually have an editorial coming out in CID any day now that says more screening more frequently. So um, as I said, with every blood test, I've been getting um, uh, syphilis testing. And the Australians have shown that by a lot of frequent testing, in these high-risk populations, you can actually reduce the frequency of secondary syphilis, which shows at a population level you're reducing transmission and reducing this infectious period. So um, if it's practical to do it three months, if you're seeing patients that often, get it every three months. If you're seeing them only on a six-month basis, uh, six months is reasonable. Certainly with PrEP, we, we need to be uh, screening as frequently as possible. And uh, you know, I would agree with Dr. Bookbinder. Um, you know, if they're not getting their STD test, they still should get their PrEP, um, but, you know, we have to encourage people to um, get STD screened um, frequently. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so I think we've heard some uh, great lectures today and uh, a panel discussion. Um, I'm going to spend just three to five minutes summarizing uh, for the benefit of our webcast um, audience. Um, I started out this morning talking a little bit about um, cure research and cure therapy. Um, I think everyone's aware that there are both functional as well as truly eradicative uh, uh, cures, and that uh, a lot of the focus work recently has been on both trying to understand uh, the way in which viral reservoirs are established and maintained, and, and that has subsequently led to a couple of approaches, including uh, early treatment with antiretroviral therapy to basically uh, try to minimize the amount of reservoir that's formed. Uh, then we can uh, try to um, um, basically induce reservoirs through kick-and-kill type approaches with a number of latency-reversing agents. Uh, to protect uh, uninfected cells with gene therapy and to try to enhance immune function uh, to also further try to clear HIV-infected cells. Um, there are a number of newer approaches that are also being uh, looked at, including uh, uses of, um, uh, of uh, BNABs or uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies, um, uh, immunotherapies uh, such as um, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, vaccines, and, um, and uh, CART T-cells. Um, we then heard from Dr. Gulick about some of the new drugs uh, for HIV that are being evaluated. 
The concept here is to try to develop more convenient treatments, uh, those treatments that deal with resistant uh, virus, and uh, to have um, uh, treatments that um, can be um, more easily administered and taken by patients. Uh, so he talked about uh, new NNRTI, Duravarine. Uh, he talked uh, about two new um, integrase inhibitors, uh, Bictegravir, which uh, is a longer-acting um, uh, integrase inhibitor, as well as Cabotegravir, which is an IM, also long-acting uh, integrase inhibitor that's being used both as treatment and in prevention studies. He also talked about entry inhibitors, uh, specifically two attachment inhibitors, uh, fostemsevir and iblalizumab, if I can get that word out, um, and, uh, and how all of these uh, treatments are currently in evaluations in a number of clinical trials. Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya then did a very nice review on uh, hepatitis C and, and the agents that we currently have available uh, to treat uh, this infection, uh, which, are, uh, which are quite numerable and belong to several major categories of protease inhibitors as well as NS5A uh, and B uh, type drugs. Uh, like with many antivirals, uh, the combination of these drugs uh, from different classes seem to be uh, more effective uh, and, in fact, uh, recommended in, in just about every case of hepatitis C and that the duration of treatment really depends upon the situation and the population that you're dealing with. So most uh, HIV, uh, HCV co-infected patients require 12 to 24 weeks of treatment, that eight weeks of therapy is probably uh, insufficient, um, and that uh, uh, the combinations of two and three drugs uh, are uh, obviously the, the treatments that are generally recommended. Um, let's see, then who came next? Oh, and then we had our panel discussion, which I think was uh, self-evident. I think there are uh, a, a lot of uh, 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 data that's being generated currently about the uh, usefulness and effectiveness of uh, using um, uh, dolutegravir uh, as a means of treating both um, patients who have uh, become resistant or refractory to other treatments, as well as in the upfront uh, stage. Uh, and of course, whenever uh, you have comorbidities, you also need to keep in mind uh, the side effects as well as the advantages of many of the uh, currently available antiretroviral drugs. Um, we then um, had a very nice uh, a talk by Dr. Bookbinder about uh, the, uh, the benefits of pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, I think uh, its usefulness is now quite clear uh, that there appear to be some differences between uh, men and women in terms of, of uh, the number of um, or the minimum number of doses that are probably needed in order to uh, be assured of prevention of acquiring HIV infections. So probably uh, four uh, doses or more per week is necessary for men, and uh, six doses or more is probably required for women. Um, what else? Um, she talked, I, I think, very nicely about uh, some of the scale-up issues with regards to getting 
uh, PrEP more widely available and, um, and, and uh, used in various communities um, uh, in the United States, and uh, many of um, uh, her points, I thought, were very uh, well taken. Um, uh, then uh, Dr. Johnson uh, gave uh, us what I thought was a very nice uh, brief uh, overview of uh, some of the primary care um, aspects of comprehensive uh, primary care management for HIV, focusing both on um, uh, uh, malignancies as well as cardiovascular diseases and a little bit about um, uh, osteopenia, osteoporosis as well. I think the key point is that we need to be aware of these um, uh, of these uh, um, aspects beyond opportunistic infections as complications of HIV, and that as as time goes on, these are going to become more uh, important, both in terms of um, their morbidity to patients, but also causes of mortality. And so, screening uh, both for malignancies and for cardiovascular disease, and paying attention. Uh, to preventative approaches are going to be very important. And uh, I think he nicely outlined many of those aspects of what, uh, of, of what that needs to be. And then Dr. Klausner just gave us, I thought, a very uh, nice overview of some of the more common sexually transmitted diseases uh, that we see in both our HIV positive and our general population, uh, and made, I thought, some very important recommendations regarding um, uh, appropriate treatment for, um, uh, for uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis uh, in various uh, stages of disease and in different populations. Uh, so I thought we had a very broad uh, discussion over a number of issues that are, I, I think are important uh, in the management of patients with HIV infection. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed the day. Um, please remember uh, to, to uh, complete your evaluation, which will be sent to you uh, by email. Uh, you'll need to um, send those back in in order to receive your CME. Um, also, if you can remember to uh, recycle your uh, lanyard and your uh, badges, that will uh, save uh, ISUSA some funds uh, so that we can continue these programs. Uh, I do want to thank all of the speakers for wonderful presentations. Uh, I want to thank ISUSA, specifically uh, Donna, Kristen, um, Scott, and uh, Annalise for their uh, exceptional uh, help, which has uh, really made this program uh, wonderful. And then I want to uh, thank our um, our. our uh, sponsors, our, uh, the pharma um, individuals or, or companies who provided uh, unrestricted financial support for these programs without which we couldn't uh, do these programs. And then finally, to you all for participating. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all next year. Uh, the date, I think, was uh, up on the screen earlier. It's April 9th, and we will be having our uh, conference next year at the California Endowment downtown, which I think was convenient for uh, a lot of folks, more so than, than here even. So thank you very much for uh, sticking with us to the end. Have a safe trip home, and we'll see you next year.